Um, the VBS theme for this year was based on Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 18 in particular. And the, the, the name of the VBS was Keepers of the Kingdom. And I actually started a, a series, I guess you could call it, um, with big spaces in between the first two parts. Um, but it was a series that maybe I will continue or, or do a consecutive series on in another, um, another time. But it was God's design for the family. And I decided to start doing that on Mother's Day um, to look at God's design for the family. Looking at the chapter before this in Ephesians 5 where Paul begins to apply the truth of the gospel starting with wives and then husbands and then here in the beginning of chapter 6 of Ephesians uh, with children. And just by way of background, um, we'll look a little bit at the section that we, we looked at with the children this week on, on spiritual warfare in verses 10 through to the end of this chapter. Um, but I wanted to also make this kind of a combination of part three of God's design for the family by looking at the, the first four or so verses of this chapter. Um, we, again, Paul has laid out his, his application of the gospel truths he's been teaching through the first three, three and a half chapters of Ephesians by focusing on wives and then on husbands. And then here we see these words in Ephesians chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bibles, by the way, you can find this on page 829. That's 829. So I'll just read, uh, read these, these words. In fact, we'll read the whole chapter and then we'll begin looking at um, God's design for the family part 3 by looking at what he says to children. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, this mighty, in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you once again in the name of your Son, asking that you would help us to see something more of him, something more of you, that you would speak to us through your word, for this is your word. We ask that not only the heavens would declare your glory, but that everyone who is listening to the sound of my voice and who just heard your very own words would be those who respond in faith and repentance and that we ourselves, not just at this time, but throughout our lives would display and declare the glory of God. Help us to understand more about you. We thank you that you have been so kind that you spoke to us in your word, that you have chosen throughout the ages to speak in a way that we can understand you and know you and love you and live in fellowship with you. If we receive your word in faith, Help us to be a people that walk by faith in Christ. And we thank you that he has accomplished a complete and eternal salvation for whoever will believe in him. That he is not only our example, but he is first and foremost our salvation through his own life, through his own death and resurrection. And because of that, we have a hope that goes far beyond the grave 
or any circumstance we find ourselves in. So would you please encourage our hearts with these truths this morning and would you also quicken us so that we would be obedient to what this passage is saying, what you are saying through this passage, that we need to be alert, that we need to recognize what it means to live as a Christian in this world, in whatever station and position you have put us in. May we seek to understand our identity by your word, first and foremost. Help us to to see these things, to believe them, and to rightly apply your word. And help me to simply be a tool in your hands. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight at this time. Our rock and redeemer. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you just came in while we were praying, we are in Ephesians chapter 6. And so, I want to look at the first four verses again. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. And as we, as we think about this, it's, a, it's always important to remember that the only wise and safe and faithful way to read any passage of Scripture is in context. It doesn't matter where we turn, we should ask, who is writing this? Who is he writing it to? What are some of the things he's already said? And so Paul, if you, if you want to find out the background of this church in Ephesus, which is who he's writing it to, believers, Christians who are in Ephesus, that it's a place in, in Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day Turkey. And Paul had gone there on a, a missionary journey. He'd been sent by the Lord, and he was preaching the gospel in this area. And a lot of people were being saved. Under the sound of his preaching, people were turning from false gods and idolatry and becoming Christians. You can find the account of this in Acts chapter 18 and 19 if you would like to read that later. But one of the things that shows us just how much idolatry existed in this place is that the response of their repentance, the evidence of their faith, was shown by the fact that all these Christians took idols, little wooden and stone fake beings that they were worshipping, quite literally. And in their repentance and faith, they heaped all of these idols together and burned them. All the books, too. Books which teach about things that we would call today, for example, something like witchcraft and all, and all kinds of false religion. And they said, I guess quite literally, to hell with this. We have found the truth. And they burned a heap uh, and the value of all this false religion, all the items that made up this false religion, was like millions of dollars. Millions of, t- of dollars in today's time. This shows you just how much they valued this truth, this Christ that they had come to understand, and how they showed their repentance in a very serious way. And the people in the city of Ephesus were very upset by this. They didn't like it because... Somebody had to sell those millions of dollars worth of false religion, which means 
somebody and some people were not going to be getting millions of dollars anymore. You see, that's how Satan works. Paul, in this passage, talks about understanding the schemes of the devil. Well, one of the ways that the world hates, or one of the reasons the world hates Christ and Christians, we're going to see this more and more in Cayman as time goes on. One of the reasons that we are actually hated by the world is because there are certain things as Christians that we are going to choose to not do, or I should say we should choose to not do, to not participate in, to, to not invest in activities and so forth that are going to show that we are people that are set apart and that people are not going to profit from because we're Christians. So they were very upset about this. Um, but anyway, Paul, after a couple of years, he leaves the city of Ephesus. And in leaving Ephesus, he, he's, he's not only seen people converted, not only are people becoming Christians, there's not just a general group of believers, right? A general group of believers doesn't really make up a church per se. Not just gathering in his name is what makes a church. But to be more specific, every time Paul writes one of these letters, which he's actually writing the book of Ephesians as it's a letter, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, these are written from jail. Notice what he says there in six, chapter 6, verse 20. This gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Why was he in chains? Why was he in jail? For preaching the gospel. And look at his prayer. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This shows that Paul's just a man. He has fears. Courage, bravery, strength in the Lord does not mean that you don't, you don't have fear. That's a lie. It means that you take that fear and by God's strength, you face it and you move through it. But Paul writes each of these letters, not just the churches in general, but to the elders that have been established in these churches. What constitutes really what you could call a local church, like the one we are in this morning, not just the building, but this church that has stood for 94 years almost, is the fact that there are elders and there are deacons and there's a congregation which the elders and deacons are part of as well. And Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, which you can find this in Acts chapter 20, he says that he's going to leave and he leaves them with a charge. And to paraphrase some of that charge, he says, I've preached the whole counsel of God to you in these couple of years. And now I'm entrusting this church to you. And I'm, and I'm entrusting this church and you all to the gospel and to God himself. And I want you to understand that there are going to be people, even from within this church, who are going to creep in like fierce wolves to tear apart the flock. Not just from outside, but that there are going to be people who are in sheep's clothing, but are actually wolves. And so Paul, in writing this letter to the Ephesus, maybe five, six, ten, ten years later, who knows exactly. But a, a number of years have gone by and he writes this, uh, this letter, Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. So the pastor named Timothy, who he addresses at the beginning... And who he also writes two letters to. A young man who he's trained in the faith to be the pastor there. Would have received this letter. And all of the people hearing this, at least a vast majority of the church. When these letters were read, by the way, 
if you think a whole chapter is long. The church at this time, they used to meet early in the morning. And they would read sometimes entire books. And sing and pray and praise God until the middle of the day. And I'm not saying that as a judgment. It's just an observation. But that's our, that's our history as the church. That's where we're coming from today. So we're, we're, we're very blessed to have such faithful Christians in our, in our historical family tree. But when Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and when Timothy receives it, many of them would have remembered what they were saved from. And so these words and this, these concepts about spiritual forces, and we, we don't just wrestle against flesh and blood, but we're wrestling against principalities and rulers of the darkness. And they would have not been sitting there wondering what he was talking about, because that's what they were saved out of. And it was more clear to them, perhaps, than some of us in a more modern, more Western culture, that there is such a thing as a spiritual war that is going on beyond what our eyes can see. This war is real. And so, again, coming back to the fact that Paul teaches the gospel, one of the most famous passages that I'm sure many of you have heard is is found in chapter 2, in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. It's the gift of God. All of our salvation, even including the sight to see and believe, which he calls faith. It is all a gift from God. And so, when he takes these gospel truths in the first few chapters and then starts to apply them more specifically, he talks about unity in chapter 4. He talks about living as children of light, as you'll see a little subheading there points out in verse 17 and on. Then the beginning of chapter 5, he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved the children, and live a life of love, just as God loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. These are, these are applications of what Christ has done for us that we need to put into practice. And there's another, there's another important truth here at the end of chapter 4. Look at verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. We are to be people, Paul says. God says, through Paul, who are marked by forgiveness. By compassion. Not by holding on to things that are hurtful. Famous passage people use in weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. It starts out by saying, love is patient. Oh, love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. See, God, when He forgives us in Christ, He has the longest list of wrongs that we commit 
Because all sin is ultimately committed against Him. Every time you feel like someone sinned against you, you must always remember that. They don't just sin against you. They're sinning against God, which is worse than sinning against you. And so Paul takes all of these types, and it's, this is worth reading. I would say if you, if you have, or not if you have time, if you're willing to make the time, sit down and read through the book of Ephesians. Because we can, we can sometimes run off with passages like chapter 6 and spiritual warfare, and we get all kind of cool ideas about what, what could be going on, but it's attached to the end of all of these things I'm talking about. And this is the purpose for which God ultimately created us in the beginning to be imitators of him, to be his image bearers, which is now recaptured and being reapplied by Jesus Christ for those who believe. And then Paul moves from being kind of general. He's saying a lot of these things to Christians in general, and he gets specific. You see what he says here in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Actually, some translations say, Submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's one sentence, verses 25 and 26 of chapter 5. And so the pattern for a husband is to die to himself and as, as many ways as possible to love our wives to love his wife as Christ loved the church and the wife is to submit to her husband and as I pointed out on Mother's Day when I spoke about the wives and I spoke about the fathers on, or the husbands on Father's Day you may feel these things that I'm about to say and you may have said it or even heard it nowhere in the Bible will you find the passage that says Respect has to be earned. Or I will submit to a person who's worthy of it. There's only one person, I guess you could say, who's worthy of our submission. And I can tell you it's not me. It's God. But when God puts authorities in the land and governments and so forth, and husbands in the home, pastors and elders in churches it's not a suggestion it's actually a command that unless there is something being done directly in opposition to the word we are to submit and husbands we are to love our wives and I, I pointed out that you know likewise there's nothing that says she has to earn my love no we didn't earn God's love either we can't earn God's love. Do you know what we earn by and by each day? We deserve God's justice as the time goes by. But praise God that because of Christ, we can find extra 
<laughs> grace when we need it, to forgive, to love, to submit, to honor each other, etc. And so these are things that Paul is applying now specifically to the family unit. And the reason why it's so important that we look at this is because since the beginning of time, it is what we call the nuclear family that was the beginning of the crumbling of society. Think about it this way. Before anyone else was born from Adam and Eve, before society started to be built as we know it, sin had already entered. It's not as if there was ever a point when there was more than just Adam and Eve existing and we had this good society and all of a sudden society is crumbling. Think carefully about what I'm saying. Sometimes we use language like this. Our society is crumbling, it's falling apart, and that's understandable. To some degree, maybe we had a certain period of time we're thinking about where things were better. But society has been crumbling since it started because of sin. And where does the crumbling begin? In the home. In the family unit. So Paul continues now having spoken to, to wives and then to husbands. And I, I did say and I mean, I meant it and I think it, it's probably true. But part of the reason that he start, starts with this order, I think God may be trying to show us something, is that this is the order in which the fall took place. Satan, the liar, the tempter, the accuser, he came and he deceived Eve. And then Adam and Eve ate Eve ate, Adam ate, he was there with her. And so Paul is saying that, I think, or showing, I think, that there's a direct link between the way things were undone in that improper ordering and the way things need to be fixed back up in Christ through faith and repentance and the way he orders this. And then he comes down in chapter 6 to children. And notice what he says, children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Let's take a moment there to think about this word, children, and then the word obey. Now, I don't yet have the privilege to be a, an in-law to my daughter. I don't have a problem with that either. Happy to wait a little bit. But this does not say, adults, obey your parents in the Lord. And I'm sure that it would probably be a, or it is a probably a very difficult thing to watch children that you have loved and taken care of grow up into maturity and then maybe marry someone and then you still want to have some involvement in that picture. Or even if they're not married, you still want to constantly guide them. But there's a different age period, a period there of time that defines what we call children. But children, since there's some of you here, listen to what this says. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And Paul, just like the society had a lot of other issues, the society he's talking to, not, not when he speaks in this book of Ephesians, but the society that he's referring to when he says obey is the society that they live in. It is a very godless society. 
There's a lot of disobedience to parents. There's a lot of husbands, instead of loving their wives, being harsh and overbearing and controlling and domineering. And there's a lot of wives trying to do the same thing in the other direction instead of what we were called to do. And so Paul is, again, addressing the Christians that make up this church in Ephesus to say, I know where you live, but where you live shouldn't define who you are. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obedience doesn't just have to do with the right outward actions. Maybe you feel good sometimes that you do the right thing, even though you feel like doing the complete opposite inside. And then you think, phew, I got away with that. Mom and dad are proud, or maybe a boss, because he talks about that in a little bit. We'll get to that. Maybe a boss thinks I did the right thing, but all the time I was in my heart cursing this person or you know, scowling and having a bad attitude towards them. Obedience is not just doing the right thing. It's doing the right thing from the heart as we're asked to do it when we do it. And this one, I am starting increasingly every day to understand how important and how difficult it is. And there's never a, an age that's the right age to start helping children to learn what the right thing is. They need to start learning as soon as possible. It says, obey your parents. Don't just take the, the right actions. Don't just do the right things as Jesus, you know, Jesus challenges the Pharisees all throughout Matthew. We've seen this because they're doing the right things externally. He says, these people worship me with their lips. They're going through the motions. All the songs that, that they're singing and all the activities of religious practice that they're doing is happening. But he says, these people are worshipping me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So, to explain this a little bit more, I think, um, verse 2 is helpful. And this is actually one of the commandments. Look at verse 2. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise. See, that, that whole from the heart thing has to do with honor. Because we are never too young or too old to do this. There's different ways that one can honor their father and mother when you're a child. Or I should say there's different ways that you could apply this truth if you're, if you're a child and, and if you're an adult. Honoring your father and mother as a child can be, like I said, obeying what they say. You know the rules of the house. There is a law that's been put in place, so to speak. And you do it from the heart with the right attitude to please them. Even if you don't feel like it sometimes, you've got to say, this is right. This is what the Lord calls me to. And look at this. There's a, there's a command here, and it's a, it's a command that has a promise. Verse 3, here's the promise. That it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Who wouldn't want it to go well with them? Who wouldn't want to enjoy long life on the earth? This is a good thing. And this, this reminds us that we, we should never buy into the idea that God's 
law is anything but good. We are being tempted to think very often that God's law is not good or it's burdensome. To which I would ask, which command do you find that is not good? If you, if you have this quietly sitting in your heart today, is it the one that says, you shall have no gods before me? Love the Lord your God with all your, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Don't take, you know, which one is it? The one that says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not steal. You see, all of these things are good. And they're not just good for us. They're good for the whole world. If we have a problem with God's law, which actually we do by nature, what it is showing is that the good law of God is revealing the bad heart of sin. But the training ground, as verse 4 talks about, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The training ground for children to grow up and learn what it means to be godly is the home. Think carefully about this now. We just went through a week of VBS. Right? Children, some of you are used to being in children's church or Sunday school. Maybe some of you are used to going to a youth group. But guess what? At the end of time, when all parents stand before God and all uh, pastors and, and church leaders and volunteers, all of us stand before God, do you know who God is going to hold accountable for how children are raised? The parents. Not the Sunday school teachers. I mean, you will be commended for your faithfulness. Don't misunderstand me. But primarily, it is the parents who this instruction is given to. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't, don't burn them out. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This has to do with instructing their mind with truth. They need to learn what it means to be a person, a human being. And then what it means to, to be an obedient child. And they need to be trained with repetition over and over patiently. And again, I keep learning more about what this means. It is difficult to be patient and to not exasperate your children. What this means, especially I guess for, for I was going to say especially for men, but for all of us, is that we can't just have a quick reaction to our children and expect them to understand what's going on. We need to reason with them. We need to discipline them. The Bible actually talks about that. Sparing the rod. Okay. Now I might get in trouble for that one, but oh well. There's a form of discipline that, that happens even before that point. And all forms of discipline should include instruction. Children don't just need to feel what's wrong. They need to understand why it's wrong. And they need to understand why something is right versus wrong. And especially in this age we're living in. 
He uses the word fathers there, but it's actually something that both people carry out, the mother and the father. We need to make the time as parents to have time with our family so that our children can receive a little bit more patience instead of our busyness pouring into the way we disciple and raise them. And they'll be exasperated by that. So we see that, again, God's design for the family includes these spheres, these, these, these levels of authority. There's authority there. There's instruction. And all of it is in the Lord. That's why he uses this phrase as well. There are certain things that some parents would like to teach their children that is far from being in the Lord. It is separated from anything of God. And in those cases, you should not obey your parents. If your parent is trying to teach you how to steal something from the supermarket, if your parent is trying to teach you how to use some form of, um, some, some illegal way to make money, you should not obey them. And you should deal with whatever comes from that. But in the Lord actually puts the responsibility on the parents too. Because we need to ask ourselves as parents, is the way that I am seeking to live my life in the Lord? It's not just by the words we say either. The first way that our children, especially at a young age before they can communicate, will see what in the, in the Lord looks like or doesn't look like is by looking at the example between the husband and the wife, the father and the mother. And so Paul is saying to these families that make up some of the membership of the church in Ephesus, and by extension, God is saying it not just to them, but to us. The most important facet, the most important building block of society is this nuclear family, the the husband, the wife, and the children. And we cannot allow ourselves to be impacted so much by society that we lose sight of this and we fail to do the simple, basic things God has called us to. And this is why I think he connects this right, right up close with spiritual warfare. Because everything he's saying to everyone in the church in Ephesus and to us today, it all falls in that context. We all live in the middle of a spiritual warfare. We're all members, as we thought about this week, of the kingdom of God or of the kingdom of Satan. There is no neutral ground here on this earth, in this world that's affected by sin. And so we're going to get into that in a moment. But look with me at verses 5 through 9. I think this is also slightly controversial text. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord 
will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Now, we have to deal with something that a passage like this can very often cause people to say and is causing people today to say about the Christian faith. So let's just clear the air about a a few important facts. Number one, Christians did not create slavery. (laughs) Number two, no particular people group versus another created slavery. Slavery in different forms has existed for a very long time. Almost as long as people have existed. Slavery has been around. And the root of slavery... Well, there's probably a few things, but I'll mention a couple. It has to do with favoritism, as, as we'll see in verse 9 here. God doesn't show favoritism. God shows no partiality. There's no partiality in God. The root of slavery has to do with things like um, partiality and favoritism. Thinking for whatever reason, usually external reasons, that one kind of person is better than another. It also has to do with greed. Manipulating a person or a group of people to get more than you could get on your own. And applying all sorts of sinful reasoning in your head and your heart. But when these Ephesian Christians became Christians, what we have to think about is they already existed in this society. Some of them already had slaves. Some of them were slaves. Some of them were masters. And so when they were born again, they were already going through their daily life in this way. Many of the Ephesian Christians didn't get up to work on Sunday morning and I mean on Monday morning and you know walk or ride their beast of burden to work and clock in for a 9 to 5. Many of them were slaves, which meant they they basically had been purchased and they lived on the same property they worked for and they had to do exactly what they were told regardless of how they were treated. And Paul never says slavery is good. You'll notice this. He never says that slavery is good or slavery is bad. What Paul actually says is, if you find yourself as a slave, when you hear these words, if you're a believer, understand something. God did not catch you and save you and think about these things as an afterthought. He has a good purpose for why you're in a bad situation. But in His goodness, He has saved you. And the best thing you could do, which might result, hopefully, in in being set free, but the best thing you could do is live as if you were serving Christ. And isn't this a a freeing thought? Whether you have what you would like to say is a good husband, or a good wife, or a good child, or good parents, think about this thought here. Verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because some of them would have said, I'm not even being close to rewarded for what I, I just, I don't deserve this treatment and I, and I, I wish I could get more. But look what he says in verse 8. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether slave or free. So Paul is not writing this letter 
to put down a blueprint for how to end slavery. Although I will tell you this, while certain Christians, or at least professing Christians throughout the ages have had slaves, it is also the Christian church who has led the way in doing things like setting slaves free. They have been at the front line when it comes to things like that, when it comes to um, setting up hospitals and setting up schools and all sorts of things that have been a blessing to society. And I use the word professing Christians fairly. Again, we don't know who, who he's talking to specifically, but he's saying, if you hear these words and you're a slave, you're ultimately not serving man but God. And he says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. You see how the gospel is supposed to be like an equalizer. He says, masters, maybe you have a little bit of pride. Maybe you feel good about your estate. You know, you think, well, I've got this big plot of land. Okay, but now that you're a Christian, you need to understand something. That needs to die. Your attitude like that needs to die. Your master is in heaven. He, he, he owns it all. And he says, don't threaten them. Start to treat them, instead of treating them like a piece of property, treat them as if they were equal to you. Both their master and yours. The focus there is on the master, which should tr cause them to treat the slave in a different way. And he says this, there's no favoritism. God's love, he's saying, God's favor, it doesn't rest more on you than your slaves. So there should be an equality in the way that they're treated. I'm sure we'll get some questions about this in the Bible study tonight, but for now I'll, I'll just pause on that. And then Paul says at the end of his letter the, these words that some of us have been hearing all week. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So, this whole concept of spiritual warfare is what's impacting the existence of slavery, the way slaves and masters interact with each other, the, the, the lack of um, simplicity and peace that exists in some marriages and some parent-child relationships. But notice where the strength comes from. You want to be a, an obedient child. You want to grow up to have your days long in the land. You want to be a, a godly wife, a godly husband, a godly mother, godly father. Some days you don't feel like you have the strength to do it. And those days are actually the days when you're most right. Because we ultimately don't have the strength or the wisdom to live as godly people. That is why Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Joshua, when he was taking the Israelites into the promised land, he was told, Be strong and courageous. Right? Be very strong and courageous. And part of what God was saying to Joshua there was, you need to be strong in me. You, this is not about your, your own goodness, your own strength. 
we were talking about the Jesus fasting and I asked a question something like this why do you think God allows people to become so weak so that they can go into these hard testing times in their weakness and uh, one of the children said well, so, that, so that we can really find out how strong we are I said mm. I was trying most of the week to not just say no trying to find another way to answer mostly but I, I, there's some answers that just have to be no the answer to that is no it's, it has nothing to do with your strength God allows us to go into those periods where we are at our weakest to show his power to show his strength as Paul says uh, my power is made perfect in your weakness and this is our call Christian to put on the full armor of God to take our stand against the devil's schemes. And the devil is very cunning, is he not? He's called the, the liar, the father of lies. He's called the, the tempter. And then he's an accuser. And I just want you to think about the devil's schemes and how deadly they are. Satan comes to Eve and takes 90% takes of a statement God made or 99% of it, and just twists a little 1%, gets her to start thinking. Yeah, you know, maybe... And at that point where she doubts God's word as being true, she, she, she no longer is submitting to it as the ultimate authority, but she's starting to get sucked into being deceived, into believing Satan is right versus being wrong. She believes the lie. Then what happens? As soon as Adam eats, as soon as she eats, as soon as Adam eats, immediately. We go from seeing at the end of Genesis 2, and they were naked and unashamed. They had no guilt. They had no shame. But immediately, as soon as the fruit is eaten, the liar shows himself as the accuser. And the accusations of Satan's schemes, that's how he works. He tempts us to see something that is bad as good. And the moment we give into it is the moment that we have shame and guilt. And when you commit sin, when you disbelieve God's word and act on Satan's or your own flesh as if it's true, when it's in opposition to God's truth, when you commit sin, whatever that sin is, you may receive forgiveness if you repent, but some of the sins we commit have long-lasting consequences. And that's part of the judgment of God on sin. Satan tempts, and then he accuses, and then he flees, and he leaves. Even though he's not omnipresent like God, he cannot be everywhere at once. He has so infected us as a human race that we wake up with temptation wrapped around us. All we have to do is start living. And it's not just outside of us, it is in us. This is why Paul says to put on the full armor of God, this belt of truth, this shield of faith, this gospel, these shoes of the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and praying constantly. 
Because the, the end of this battle, the end of this war, is not at some point during the week. Living with this mentality cannot end in this life. The end of the war is when Jesus returns. And just like I said a few times this week, it would be foolish for a soldier to say, well, I, I won one battle, and I know the enemy could pop up at any time. I know I could face another battle, but I'm just going to sit down and take my armor off in the middle of the war zone. We can't do that either. We can't act as if we're not constantly in this war. We have to stand firm. We have to constantly pray in the Spirit. And this is why Paul says in verse 18, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. When he says pray in the Spirit, he's not talking about a style of prayer. It has nothing to do with that. He's not talking about speaking in tongues or some strange idea which many people will teach. When Paul talks about praying in the Spirit, he's talking about praying in line with everything else that we find in the Bible that is consistent with what the Spirit Himself has revealed about God. He's saying pray according to what God has shown you about Himself, about yourself, about this world we live in. Pray according to God's mind. And God has been so gracious that He reveals His mind to us, His will and His Word. You see, this comes right back to something that we've talked about in a few Bible studies. You, you can't pray in the Spirit if you are not a person that is filling your mind with the Word of God. We have to be a people that are committing ourselves evermore to filling ourselves up with the Spirit-filled words of God that we find only in the Bible. And as we do that, reading, thinking, studying, meditating on God's Word, and praying, then we begin to understand what it means to pray in the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. And Paul says, with this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Why do you think he didn't say, pray for the whole world? I'll tell you. He says pray for the saints, meaning Christians, and not because we are so saintly. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Because we are the ones, Christian, we are the ones who are on the battlefield fighting for the truth of God's world. I mean, sorry, God's word. In, in God's world, fighting for the truth of His word. There's nowhere else that people can really go to understand who the true God is. To understand something about Him. To understand what He has said except for this book we call the Bible. And there's one group of people who possess a right faith in this Bible and say that we base our entire eternity on this Bible. And that is the Christian church. And so we have to all the while be alert 
and keep praying for each other that we would be a people committed to this word, a people committed to the things that we just heard about in these passages. God has not made it easy, but it is actually quite simple. My, my challenge for us today is this. And maybe it's a little bit less of a challenge for the majority of you here. If you have not read the whole Bible before, make a commitment over the course of the next couple of years to read the entire Bible. There's all sorts of tools to help you find a format. It doesn't matter how, ultimately, but learn what is in the Bible. Because God speaks to you through His Word. God shapes us by His Word. And He guards us by His Word. And we can pray in the Spirit by committing ourselves to this. And commit yourself more, perhaps, to the kinds of gatherings that we are experiencing right now. These gatherings are times where we come together to fellowship around the Word of God, to hear from Him, to sometimes in communion see a display of His gospel salvation. And as time goes on, let us not draw weary, become, become weary as the time draws on. Let us not be like some who are, who are not in the habit of meeting up. But all the more, let us meet up together as the time draws near. Because this armor is not an individualistic thing. Just like the body needs all of its parts to properly be working together to, to just take care of itself so that it can take care of others more efficiently. Let us pray that we, the members of the body of Christ, would stay committed and grow in our commitment to fellowshipping like this and to seeing how we can do life together as His people. But the posture we should have is that this is a war that we're in. This is a battle. And by God's grace, we can stand strong. We can stand firm in Him and His might. This is the might of the one who was raised from the dead. The might of the one who said, let there be light. And there was. And the one who has spoken into the hearts of all his people and said, let there be life in this person. Let this person come to life through faith in Jesus Christ. And if that is you this morning, then I pray that you would continue on these, in these little challenges and that you'd stay committed to him in all that you do. But if that is not you, I, I want to just remind you that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners like me, like you. He lived a life of sinless perfection and He died a death on the cross that we all deserve to die and He didn't. He suffered the wrath of God so that those who trust in Him will not and will receive the forgiveness of their sins. And He rose again on the third day and ascended back to glory and is coming back for those who are waiting for Him. And so put your faith in Him this day if you're listening to me. And all of us together will know what these verses in closing 
mean, mean in verse 23 and 24. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love, with love incorruptible.